Welcome to the Writing Mustard Podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today we talk with Professor Beth Lou Williams about her new award-winning book, The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. In modern America, we hear plenty about immigration, citizenship, debates over who does and does not belong in the country. But too little attention is given to the complex history of how concepts of alien and citizen have evolved in the United States. Too many of us wrongly assume that the United States has always had clear categories of alien and citizen, legal and illegal immigrant, and so forth. But many of these ideas were in flux during the late 19th century and not well defined. Professor Beth Lou Williams' new book, The Chinese Must Go, Violence, Exclusion, and the Making of the Alien in America, published by Harvard University Press in 2018, confronts us with some of this history. Using examples in the American West from California, the Pacific Northwest, and elsewhere, Lou Williams presents how and when Americans politically organized against the Chinese attempted to regulate their movements across borders, regulate them here in the United States, passed various laws to deny them entry into the country, and violently expelled them from various American cities. She also relates the impact that these actions had on the Chinese themselves at the time and in the generations since. In relating late 19th century history of anti-Chinese movements, violence, law, and diplomacy, Lou Williams reveals key historical moments when America first began to grapple with alienage, to categorize groups that did not belong, and either exclude them from entering the United States or marginalize those already here. In addition to providing historical narratives to investigate these broad conceptual ideas, The Chinese Must Go also integrates the two often overlooked stories of anti-Chinese violence in the American West and integrates them into the broader American history of racial violence. All of this work provides important historical context for our present understandings of citizenship, alienage, and racial violence in American history. Beth Lou Williams is an assistant professor and a Philip and Beulah Rollins Bicentennial Preceptor in the Department of History at Princeton University. Her book that we'll talk about today, The Chinese Must Go, recently won the 2019 Ray Allen Billington Prize and the 2019 Ellis W. Hawley Prize from the Organization of American Historians, as well as the 2019 Vincent P. DeSantis Book Prize from the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Professor Lou Williams, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate you spending some time. You've been quite busy in the last few weeks, it looks like. You were just at a, at a conference where the book won a number of awards, correct? Yeah, I, I feel very fortunate for that. That was fun. Yeah, um, well, yeah. I hope you can ride that high for a while. I had a lot of um, fun going through your books. I, I think listeners are going to be interested, and I think they're going to learn a lot of things they, they weren't uh, aware of. Um, and so I want to start first kind of with one of your, one of the big ideas of what you're trying to do in the book, trying to take this history of um, anti-Chinese racial violence and to weave it into the broader narrative of American racial violence, which is often focused on African-Americans and Native Americans. Uh, why is it you think that that the Chinese American, the Chinese and Chinese American experience hasn't been kind of a part of this broader narrative? Well, I think um, when it comes to violence, there's some good reasons that it's not 
always been seen as part of the same history. Um, part of it is that when I, I look at the violence in the 19th century West against the Chinese, it looks really different than the violence that had been experienced by um, other racial minorities. So, in for example, a lot of what I look at is California. And in California, just a few decades earlier, um, you know, from the 1850s, 1860s, there had been, you know, violence that was called at the time extermination against, you know, the um, tribes in, in California, including the Tioki Indians. And if we look at sort of contemporaneous violence against African Americans in the South um, during you know, Jim Crow, we have their sort of staggeringly lethal violence, um, particularly lynchings. This is this sort of spectacularly gruesome and performative violence. And the violence against the Chinese looks really different. And part of what I was trying to do in the book is to insist that what happens to the Chinese still is violence, because I think that um, if we use sort of if we imagine that violence in the 19th century looks like either lynching or sort of um, military campaigns or militia campaigns against Native Americans, we're going to miss what happens to the Chinese. So in the mid-1880s, what I see is in, uh, I think it's 168 communities across the West that I was able to document, there were these expulsions of the Chinese. Uh, some of them are lethal. Some people are killed. But most of the violence was designed to push Chinese community um, out of neighborhoods, out of towns, out of cities. And so instead, the tactics tend to be things like arson, uh, harassment, threats, you know, uh, driving out campaigns, rounding up all of the Chinese and and marching them out of town. And it just, it looks like a really different thing. So I think that's one of the reasons. That yeah, so it's a little bit less lethal, and so then maybe it's read as not as overtly yeah. violent. But I think it's also about sort of the, you know, the larger place of Asian American history within U.S. history. Uh, I think that there are only a few key moments that Asian American you know, experiences tend to sort of pierce the bubble of the mainstream dominant narrative of the United States. Um, so in the U.S. history narrative class in college, you have Japanese internment. Yeah, you have Japanese a, internment. A few other moments. Yeah, Chinese railroad workers. <laughs> um, there's very few, actually, where, um, you know, in a broad survey, Asian Americans would appear in a, in a lot of classrooms. And so I think part of that marginalization is, you know, more broad, not just this topic. I've been noticing this on Twitter recently. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was that was posting about it. But over the course of a couple of weeks, an immigration historian, I've been posting some infographics like screenshots from, you know, CNN or something. I was showing some data about, I think it was immigration numbers or uh, numbers that were parsing out things by race in America. And you have all the categories except for Asian Americans. They were left off yeah. in all these infographics. So it's, it's, it's part of this broader issue, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's certainly true in contemporary politics. Often when they you know, have exit polling data, they don't even have a category <laughs> for yeah. Asian Americans. So I think it's true. Uh, Asian Americans continue to stay sort of outside of the... I don't know, our, our memory of American history, but also sort of the dominant discourse in some ways. Um, and I think that that is very linked to the history that I study. So it's sort of, um, it's a product of this history that the yeah. expulsions were effective and then that the laws against Chinese and, the, and other Asian groups were ultimately effective. And so that this marginalization is related to the, you know, the artificial keeping small of these these groups. These... Yeah, that was something that I hadn't necessarily considered of, you know, what narratives of violence we inherit and we talk about and which ones we don't um, as a result of people surviving that violence. Or in the case of, of the Chinese, um, not necessarily surviving, but surviving in America. And the expulsions were very effective. Many Chinese were driven out and... 
those remnant communities which may have otherwise maintained the historical memory of some of these events sometimes are are lost, right? Yeah, I, I focus in particular on Tacoma, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting example of this. Um, because if you, so the Tacoma expulsion, it's hard to tell exactly how many Chinese were in Tacoma in Washington territory before the expulsion. But the this is 1885? Round, yeah, it's in 1885. A, a, approximately 800 Chinese were driven out of Tacoma. It's hard to tell because that was sort of a a hub for workers. So they were often, the population was going up and down. Uh, About 800 Chinese were driven out first through harassment and then through a, you know, roundup and march through town. And um, so the census Five years later, in 1890, records no Chinese, but so does the state in, in Tacoma. And but the census stays that way for decades. You know, the Chinese don't return to Tacoma for you know into the 20th century. And so this expulsion wiped out what was actually two Chinese neighborhoods and a large population in this small growing city, and it had a lasting effects. And the um, it's interesting. I think Tacoma is particularly interesting because there's a 21st century movement to remember this history in Tacoma and um, some local. There's like people, a, gar- a Chinese garden park. Yeah, right? they, they, they created a park and a garden in Tacoma. But as part of that, you know, trying to create sort of public memory, public history, they tried to find. Uh, descendants of the Chinese that were driven out. And they actually tried to also find descendants of the vigilantes who drove them out since their names were so publicly available. And, and uh, celebrated at the time. Yes. And they, some, yes, there yeah. photos of them and, because they celebrated their, their participation in these expulsions. But they were able to find no one who claimed relation to the vigilantes, um, which might have its own reasons. But they also couldn't find any Chinese descendants. And so that gives a sense of that those people expelled were, you know, um, many of them may have returned to China, but they also may have spread out across the U.S. West and and their stories were not recorded. This is part of a, a broader issue about some of these early Chinese experiences in America. I know there's a big, there was a big project ongoing, probably still ongoing at USC, trying to recover um, sources and um, invoices from you know, Chinese railroad workers. I think you're thinking Stanford, actually. Oh, Stanford. Yes, it is Stanford. It's yeah. a, an English or American studies professor there. Yeah, it's so I I've been a little bit involved in that. Um, it's uh, Shelley Fisher Fishkin yes. and Gordon Chang. I've been working at Stanford trying to trying to uh, understand the Chinese perspective on the building of the transcontinental railroads. But it's it's hard to find these sources. So what kind of obstacle does that present for you, or does it? restrict the kind of story you were able to tell or or impact the kind of history you were able to relate? Yeah, I think that uh, it's hard for people to wrap their minds around how few sources we have produced by Chinese migrants in the 19th century. And that railroad project is a great way for people to sort of um, imagine it because that in that project there was a team of scholars uh, I think it's over 50 both in the United States and in China across disciplines so also archaeologists anthropologists and everyone was searching in archives in so many different ways to try to find um, sources from the Chinese themselves like letters, letters letters they wrote home or yeah yes um but they found nothing we actually we've published a book uh they're actually having a celebration this week for to commemorate the end of the transcontinental however we didn't find the you know quote unquote chinese voices zero th- literally zero <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow. we found sources. I contributed and talked about a, a contractor, you know, so if we but those workers, the Chinese railroad workers, they didn't find a single letter. Um, we found lots of information about them, but not something they produced. And that, I think, gives you a sense of how hard uh, getting that perspective is. I in this book, I was looking a little later in the 1880s. 
And I look, one of the ways that I try to get those uh, Chinese sources is through testimony because they did come into court and they also um, were drawn into redress hearings. There were redress hearings to, for when the federal government was considering paying uh, redress to China. And so we have these very rare, short testimony that talks about particular incidents, but it's, but it's very little. Yeah, those are the most frustrating sources when they're so rich and you just, that you only have one of them and you, yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, you wish that you could happen upon some treasure trove of a bunch more. I know, but I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but that's one of the reasons I like working in 19th century U.S. history instead of 20th century U.S. history. I think that it's fun to the hunt, the treasure hunt. Is yeah. fun. And then when you find things, you get to spend time sitting with them. I think that a lot of 20th century history is just trying to uh, get through the stacks of paper that yeah. have produced and kept. It's yeah, so well, much. My, my book goes all the way up into the 1970s, and I mean it goes back into the 1900s, and and I, I did feel that with those early sources, you're forced to be creative with them, you're forced to sit and really think about them. Whereas towards the end of my project, it's just oh my, I guess sifting through just the mountain of you know documents, and it's a very different process. Um, yeah, I yeah. think there's probably benefits to both, but maybe we probably. need to find a happy medium. One thing you you brought up, which I hadn't considered, is this idea that, and I, I'd be curious how you, well, you respond to it in the book, but I think listeners would be interested. When people think about you know, all of kind of the mythologies of the West or the stereotypes about what the West was like in the 19th century, especially, people often talk about it as being a violent place, right? A pla yeah. And sometimes a place of, of hyper-violence, of overtly violent, and that being one of its defining characteristics. And... You bring up the the point that some people might dismiss this anti-Chinese racial violence. It's just like, oh, well, the, the West was really violent. So um, this isn't anomalous necessarily or isn't something worth, you know, particular mention or or, or unique um, investigation. How would you how do you answer that? I think that, yes, yeah, so the West was very violent and um I think that what strikes me about this violence is how clearly it was racially targeted and how broad I see it. So the, the scope, both the specificity of it and the scope. Um, so through although these are expulsions, they were systematic um, and they spread across the West. And, you know, I look at really just a period of 14 months in which they, um, oh, you know, scores of communities are engaged in this. They're often expulsions are announced in advance in some way. And they're they're explicitly racial in that Chinese, whether uh, male or female, rich or poor, um, long term residents or newcomers are rounded up and targeted. I think that that looks really different than the everyday violence of crime in the West, for mm -hmm. example, or um, or like I said, other forms of racial violence. And and I think that it's also significant to look at this violence altogether because of its effects. So uh, I spent a lot of time in the book trying to say that there are multiple effects of anti-Chinese violence, some of which we might expect and some of which are, are um, more unexpected. And so on a local level, a lot of this violence meant sort of what I call remapping the racial geography of the West. That is where the Chinese were able to live um, and work. That that is on sort of on the ground level changing locally. But it also, I argue that the violence had effect on national immigration policy and that it had an effect on U.S. relations with China. And so that's another way in which I think that this violence is, you, you know, needs separate consideration from just all of that. <laughs> all yeah, of the violence the there's so many other um, intersecting narratives and, and, and much broader context. This is this is kind of unfolding within that does does cast it in quite different light. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the some of the reasons for this movement. I'm I'm from Northwest Washington, so when you talked oh, yeah. about Sea Home and Semiamu, 
and yeah. places like that. <laughs> you know how to pronounce I, them. <laughs> I, my, my ears perk up because that's, you know, that's, that's my hometown. Um, yeah. and, um, you talk a lot about the, um, some of the early movements of kind of attempts at restricting and regulating Chinese immigration and the frustration of the, you know, these border officers, um, up on the Canadian border, which is also great because when the general public thinks about borders and immigration and border enforcement, they generally look south, right? And most of your, uh, a lot of your book is, is looking north to the northern border. But what are the frustrations or the reasons that start organizing uh, people into this anti-Chinese uh, movement, which becomes an on-the-grounds grassroots movement, also a political movement? Um, what are some of the things that are fueling this or motivating it? I have of the mind that fundamentally this movement was about, you know, racial beliefs. So the Chinese... The yellow peril yes. idea. Yeah, the, um, the, the Chinese, a lot of it, and I say that to start out because a lot of the way that that these vigilantes and then more broadly people that advocated Chinese exclusion talked about it is they talked about it in economic terms. They said Chinese are cheap labor, that they're coming in large numbers, that they're taking white men's jobs, um, that they were servile, that they were sort of slaves to Western monopolists. So a lot of this was articulated at the time through through economic rhetoric. So that's how they're they're framing their. That's how they're phrasing it. Now are they but phrasing think... it like that? at the moment or post-expulsion or post-violence as justification? I think, so I think ahead of time, you know, the, the anti-Chinese movement, I mean, it started almost as soon as the Chinese arrived in the West in the 1850s. And it, um, you know, reached a first peak in the 1870s. And then I look at this violent um, reincarnation in the 1880s. But I, it, there's surprisingly consistent rhetoric about the way, you know, who the Chinese are and what they represent to America as these, um, these they describe them as alien invaders, as, as an invasion force. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, they, at the time they articulated as as economic. But I think that those it's true that the Chinese were paid less than white workers in most fields. But, of course, that also had to do with a racial prejudice at the time, that they were seen as expendable labor, um, not needing of a living wage. And they could be brought in um, as competition to white workers only because they were being um, underpriced on the market in yeah. this racially based dual wage system. So there, there is an economic basis, but you think there's more there? Yeah, there's. There, so there, you know, there are repeated recessions in the in, across the nation, but in the West in the 1870s and then 1890s, and um, and there, it's true that once the transcontinental railroad was connected, there was much more, many more white workers that were flooding into the into the West, and therefore there was more competition for employment. It's just the Chinese were throughout this time targeted as the the source of the problem of all of these much larger economic um, ills that were going on at the time. And I think that that is based in a, a assumption that the Chinese were racially inferior, that they were um, servile in, inherently, that they were slave-like, and that they could have subsist in a way that white men could not. So there's a, I talk in the book about how sort of the main two tropes of the Chinese is that they were heathen coolies. Heathen was both a religious but also a, ra a racialized term that meant that they could not assimilate um, to American ways and American values. And coolies is that they were um, meant to be these unskilled, exploited workers. Hmm. So they're both too foreign, too alien, but then also damaging to the economy. Yeah. Um, I mean, because there are lots of other ethnic minorities, you know, working on railroads and in the mines. You know, I'm, I'm more familiar, like, with 
lots of the mining going on down in Arizona. And there is some racial violence um, against some of these European ethnic minorities, you know, from Southern or Eastern Europe. But the rhetoric around it is much less racial, much less yeah. talk about kind of the the real and ex- existential threat of of this immigrant, specific immigrant population. And it comes out quite differently with the Chinese. Yeah, I'm convinced by, you know, work by people like Linda Gordon, who argue that, you know, whiteness was a broader category in the West in the 19th century. It was more inclusive. So although we see a lot of strong nativist sentiment against ethnic Europeans in the East Coast, we see less of it in the West where there are just fewer white men mm-hmm. it, there, and so many people are not American born. So this white category is broader, um, but the Chinese are very much outside of it. Yeah, they never fall within that. Whereas lots of other groups who other places at the time um, and geographically are not within the white, the kind of uh, both legal and kind of just social construction of of whiteness, the the Chinese are never included in that. Yeah. What are some of the, the tactics then that this movement uses and, and eventually we're gonna I'd like to segue this towards kind of the that legal history of first restriction and then eventually exclusion. But in the context of the, this kind of mid eighteen eighties violence, um you mentioned that sometimes they would warn population or communities ahead of time. They would threaten them to try to get them to maybe leave on their own to self deport maybe. Yeah. And um, in today's terminology we might call it self deport. Yeah. Um are there other kind of key aspects of the tactics that they would use to try to kind of rid their community of the Chinese presence? So in some places, they would go door to door and give the Chinese a deadline to leave. Um, You know, in Tacoma, for example, they gave them about a month's notice that they should leave by November 1st, 1885. And it was two days after that, November 3rd, that they round up the remaining Chinese. Uh, that we also see tactics that the, you know, had been long-term forms of violence against the Chinese, things as simple as rock throwing, um, <laughs> smashed windows. A lot of the tactics against the Chinese were, to the vigilantes' minds, tactics that they could justify afterwards as either nonviolent or or just an extension of state force. So one of the things that allowed this this violence, these expulsions to spread across the West was the fact that vigilantes both before and afterwards would justify their actions as just an expression of, of what the federal government should be doing anyway, which is deporting the Chinese, enforcing um the Restriction Act, the Chinese Restriction Act that had recently um, tried to, to restrict their migration. And so this rhetoric of that this was, in fact, lawful and justified and within an American method dictated in many ways the tactics. And so tactics that would be called in newspapers boycotts, for example. They would say, oh, we're boycotting the Chinese. You know, sounds lawful when you write about it in the newspaper, but in um, in effect, a lot of the times it was accompanied by by violence and harassment um, and by cutting off food supplies to the Chinese. And then often arson was um, a desired tactic because it was often unclear who actually had set fires. Mm-hmm. So... Lots of Chinatowns burned, and then the newspapers would declare there was an unknown cause, uh, or maybe the Chinese had set alight their own neighborhood. And this, again, was a way to expel the Chinese without declaring that something unlawful had occurred in the community. Uh, well, tell us, so you mentioned the, the, the early restriction efforts, and, and the federal government's kind of failing to, to put it into practice. Lay out the the history of of some of these early moments of attempts by the federal government to to kind of answer you know the the demands of this growing movement to restrict Chinese immigration to the United States and then then get us up to then the eventual and I know there's a lot of 
there's a lot of legal history here, but um, the eventual um, full exclusion act, because it, it's it's more of a, a yeah. an evolution of legal attempts um, and a, a longer evolution. I think many people realize. Yeah. So when I started the book, I started trying to understand this violence that happened in the mid 1880s. And one of the reasons it seemed like a puzzle to me was that it happened two years after a law that is commonly known as the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And so the way that scholars have written about this law in the past has been, you know, in 1882, the gates were slammed against the Chinese and that the law, that first law, the so-called Chinese Exclusion Act was extremely effective. This is what scholars have said in the in in the first few years. In fact, the federal government only recorded, uh, you know, 40 Chinese immigrants. I think it's in 1880. Uh, for, you know, 10 in 1885. So they, but that's they, nonsense, right? <laughs> yes. So, but it was the reason that I found it so surprising that there would be so much violence if this law had suddenly kept out the Chinese. And so I spent a lot of time looking at the violence and, and trying to understand, you know, the perspective of the people that participated in it. And a lot of what they talked about was the, ineffectual nature of of the anti-Chinese law. And they didn't even call it the Exclusion Act, which was, was striking to me. So the 1882 law at the time was known as the Restriction Act. It had a much more narrow um, intent, I think, than we remember today. And it was extremely ineffective in its first few years. It was poorly funded. There were very few uh, customs officials that were assigned to enforce it. There were tens of thousands of Chinese that continued to enter the United States in, in the 1880s. And so this violence, this doesn't, of course, justify the violence, but it does explain why the violence could be so contagious, why there were so many communities across the West who felt justified in expelling their Chinese neighbors. They saw this violence, this expulsion, this encouragement to quote self, you know, to self-deport mm-hmm. um, as just enforcing what the federal government said it was said it was going to do in 1882, but did not. Yeah. So it's a type of vigilante justice that they felt was um, was, had some authorization, right? This is what the federal government is trying to do. They're just not doing it well, so we'll do it for them. Yeah, it's it's extra legal violence, right? Extra legal. Yeah, as yeah. It's attempting to extend the reach of the state in in the name of the state, as opposed to illegal violence that is imagined as contrary to the state will. So the the violence um, was an attempt to. To it was not just to push these Chinese out of local communities. It was also to say this federal law is not working. We want not restriction, but true exclusion, and we want enforcement of it. Yeah. And eventually, that's what happened. So the the U.S. government first attempted to negotiate a new treaty with China because they knew that a true Chinese Exclusion Act would abrogate its treaties with China. Yeah, I think this is something that I was not fully aware of, of the existing treaties we had with China. We gave them um, like some favored nation status. What was the term they used? Yeah, most favored nation. Yeah, which had opened the gates and doors because yeah. we were desperate to have their doors open to us. And so we had kind of entered into a bilateral agreement. So how does the 1882 Restriction or Exclusion Act and then what they try to pass later, how is that running up against existing agreements? Yeah, so we have to remember that this was really, this is the moment at which federal immigration policy was starting to take form in the United States. And so some of the givens that we assume today did not were not givens at the time. Mm-hmm. So we assume today that Congress and the president would unilaterally set immigration policy and that foreign nations do not 
that this is part of U.S. sovereignty and foreign nations should not dictate our ability to um, include or exclude immigrants. But at the time, though, though that was still under debate. And so what the United States had done was negotiated essentially with China, not just the movement of goods and trade with the, which the United States thought was part of America's future to be a rising power in Asia, but also the regulation of the movement of people, both Americans and Chinese. And so in the 1868 Burlingame Treaty, they had uh, explicitly allowed, the two nations had allowed and stated that, that this exchange of people and goods would occur. And um, later with the Angel uh, Treaty in 1880, they, they had narrowed this a little bit because there had been some pushback against Chinese immigration in the United States. So, but they expressly forbid, they agreed that the United States could not suspend Chinese immigration. Mm-hmm. And it was written into that treaty. And that's why the United States, these this early law, the Chinese Restriction Act, was attempting to just implement that treaty in many ways. And so it was a bilateral agreement on um, how immigration between the United States and China would unfold. After the violence occurred, the United States again went to a a bilateral solution first. They went back to China and said, okay, we need to figure out a way to slow Chinese migration more, um, the, the, the Chinese diplomats agreed at first to implement this is the Bayard Chang Treaty. Yeah, they yeah. they uh, agreed to this this treaty proposed for basically self exclusion by the Chinese that the Chinese government would prevent Chinese immigrants from coming to the United States. Uh, which seemed like a great solution from the America's perspective. But then, the, although the, the treaty was ratified in the United States, it was not ratified in China. And, and instead, the United States created their sort of first federal unilateral um, law to exclude a particular group in 1888. And they called that law the Chinese Exclusion Act. So, and, and this kind of then really cements this, the imbalance in this international relationship where we're asking them to keep their doors open to trade and commerce, but we're closing our own gates, which is kind of the the world in which we operate today. And I think how most, like, as you say, you know, we read back onto the past, the assumption that the United States has always exerted its sovereignty by saying who can and cannot enter the country and that other countries just have to deal with it, right? Yeah, we have this fascinating moment where that's that's not the case. I mean, at this point, this is kind of the first time when we start to have actual legal versus illegal immigrants, right? Yes. Which is the world we live in now, and we assume that's the way it always was, but but it was not. So then we have a series of acts after this, so like 1892. Well, because it's up for um, reauthorization every 10 years, right? Yes. And over the course of the next few decades, it's it's tightened down further and further, and some of the exemptions for merchants or um, families are are stripped out. And then when do we finally get kind of an attempt at a full a full exclusion? Well, it's it's really iterative in many ways. That you know, the Gary Act in 1892 adds in uh, a sort of passport and registration system that was seen. Which again today we think of like, oh, yeah, as a normal yeah. part, <laughs> yeah, the normal part of immigration. But at the time, the Chinese saw this as a huge humiliation, and it was seen as extreme and controversial. The idea that you would make people register themselves and carry with them passports, um, asserting their identity. The Chinese sometimes describe this as a dog tag law. Mm-hmm. If, if it gives They're you having sense. to be registered like a like livestock or something. Yes, right? yes, branded in some you know uh, metaphorical way. You know, and then in subsequent decades, that one of the things that happens is the Chinese exclusion laws are um, pushed into the insular territories. So it's um, Philippines, Hawaii. Yes, yeah. yes. And then it's permanently renewed in 1904. Um, 
and Chinese exclusion is then not repealed until the middle of World War II when the United States is allies with China in 1943. That always shocks my students. Yes. Uh, and we often forget that China was our ally. That's kind of like a real forgotten story in World War II is, you know, the, what's going on in China. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so after, after Roosevelt signs it in indefinitely, no need for renewal, we're left then with these we, we're still left with Chinese populations in the United States. We have those who were here legally. They're not coming in after, but they don't have a past to citizenship. So they're left, they're, they're here, but they're in kind of ambiguous legal ground, I guess. Um, but then you also have, um, Chinese, I mean, American born Chinese in those populations, but who are still suffering from this perception of being alien, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting to me that there are many, there are different legal statuses that Chinese migrants occupied during this period, during Chinese exclusion, and they had real different meaning legally. Uh, you know, it, it mattered whether you were an American-born Chinese and therefore a U.S. citizen by birth, or if you were a merchant and therefore an alien ineligible to citizenship, a, mer a Chinese merchant coming over, or if you but were a, but a legal. Legal, yes, aliens. legal. Yes. Or if you were unlawful in some way, uh -huh. uh, what many Chinese called paper sons or paper daughters. So those those legal categories, in some level, mattered, and they mattered to people individually in daily life as well as the moments in which they crossed the border. But in other ways, the fact that the federal immigration laws targeted the Chinese and the, as a as a national group and the Chinese only for a long for for decades meant that just being chinese being perceived as chinese that racial category um mattered as well in your daily life so the fact that there were some chinese that were unlawful uh, then affected the way that all chinese people were seen and treated a lot of them were treated as um you know as may nai calls the alien citizens and i think yeah. that that category is a little more specific than what i'm talking about here but it means that essentially there's racial profiling right there's an assumption that all chinese people are alien in some way and likely to be unlawful unlawfully present yeah and this stigma you know then this goes on for generations then um yes you know amongst these communities um it's fascinating how again how you know we we read history kind of like with reverse teleology you know and we forget the contingency of what was happening at the moment and we we read our modern assumptions on these paths and then we when we go back to these moments that you talk about we realize that um how in flux it all was and and uh and how not certain all these things were um which i think you know for you know for the listeners of this podcast and others uh you know immigration is is on everyone's mind and it's it's helpful to be reminded that the evolution of american immigration policies and citizenship and who's foreign and who's alien and who belongs who doesn't it's a much more complex and messy history than we realize yeah, I, I think I think that's a lot of what history, the study of history is, is to try to uh, understand these pasts in which the parameters of, of, I don't know, the assumptions of a society, of a state, of a people are are foreign to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you have any final comments about what makes this a uniquely Western story? And it, I mean... Of course, a lot of it, you're talking about Seattle and Tacoma and, you know, Rock Springs, Wyoming. There's a lot of Western geography here. Um, and, you know, and this is a Western podcast, supposedly. Um, but <laughs> are, are there ways in which you feel that this story unfolded in specific ways because it happened in the West or ways in which, you know, for whatever reason, the Chinese had all emigrated to, to New York City. How, how did this unfold differently because it was happening in the West? In, in the, kind of in these moments of Western expansion and the frontier and the, the growth of American settler colonialism and kind of try, our, our attempts to populate, you know, these Western landscapes. How does that make this a unique story? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Sorry, I should have emailed you that before. <laughs> that's a big one. I think there's lots of ways. 
that it's Western. Um, or, or maybe let me reframe the fact that it is Western. How does that make it a different story than it would have been maybe elsewhere? I mean, I sometimes think about when I teach the West, I talk with students about, again, not to use the word contingency again, but to talk about how this was a region that was in, still, it was contested. It was contested ground in terms, you know, sometimes militarily contested, but, you know, in terms of society and culture and religion and economics and commerce and you know, who is going to dominate, who is going to uh, kind of run the area. It, it was it was often in flux. And that that's in play, I think, in the 1880s. Does that impact this? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I I talk a lot about how everyone, all, all of the white Americans, but also the, you know, European immigrants the who, who are Americans in waiting that arrive mm -hmm. in the West are all involved in forms of imperialism. But I think that one of the things that's striking to me, and, and it becomes very clear when we look at people's attitudes towards the Chinese, is that they're involved in, they imagine themselves to be involved in different forms of imperialism. So the, the white working class of the West is actively investing in settler colonialism and in, in transforming the West into an American society that is recognizable to the, the Eastern states. But I think that the, that the, the white American elite in these Western territories, especially in places like Washington territory and California, uh, bordering on the Pacific Ocean, are thinking forward towards a different kind of imperialism, overseas expansion into Asia and the fact that that is the, sort of the future of of American commerce and greatness, and that simply colonizing and settling the Western lands is just one step in this this broader um, broader form of imperialism. And so that becomes very um, that tension is felt throughout the the expulsion of the Chinese, exclusion of the Chinese, as as the working class very much are. We don't want Chinese in our backyard. We don't want to compete with them. And the elites are say, well, wait a second. They're, we're involved in a larger project here of uh, attempting to gain dominance in Asia. And perhaps the Chinese can be helpful to us. But both groups are, um, uh, hold racial stereotypes and prejudice against the Chinese, but they see them very differently. And I think that that sort of dual project of imperialism is is a Western story. That's fascinating. I mean, at, at one point you mentioned, yeah, that these the coastal elites, they're not just trying to make money here in the United States um, and, you know, perhaps using Chinese labor in their, you know, lumber or mining operations or whatever else to make money here. But that coastal elite is looking further west uh to asia hoping to also make money there right yeah and so yeah. um our relationship with china for them is meaningful because they're hoping to be at the top of the pile right they're hoping to run the show and to i mean this is why europeans came here in the first place right trying to get to asia and so you now have yes. uh the western coastal elite seeing that they might potentially be the ones running the whole show yeah, which is which is very different than the white working class who maybe is upset about losing jobs or feeling threatened by kind of the foreign nature of Chinese um, and wanting them out. Yeah, um, I think it's essential. I mean, I think that Western history does a, has been increasingly doing a very good job uh, grappling with the settler colonialism that occurs in the West across the 19th century. But I think it is linked <laughs> and driven in many ways by the dreams at least of imperialism in Asia and we mm -hmm. kind of have to put those two conversations together as part of a larger western story. Yeah, as kind of the natural extension of Yeah. I mean American expansion, you know, we get to the coast and we keep going. Yeah. Um, but often with some of the same underlying motivations. Um <laughs> our manifest destiny, you know. We're not quite satisfied, are we? No. <laughs> Seems not. <laughs> Well, um, I appreciate you um, taking some time this morning to to chat. What can we expect next from you, Beth? Ah, um, I don't want, and I I always tell 
<laughs> I always ask this question, and then I realize, like, oh, I don't. Maybe I'm asking them to spoil what their next project is. But is there anything you're willing to reveal about what you're working on next? Um, <laughs> I'm. I'll. I'll tell you. I can tell you a tentative title. <laughs> Does that How about sound that? like a good? Yeah. <laughs> I'm. I'm working on a a book project that I'm calling right now, at least John Doe Chinaman. Oh boy. It's, it's an attempt to understand sort of the internal regulation of race and alienage through criminal and civil civil law. So we understand what the regulation of race looks like in the Jim Crow South at the same time, but we have very little understanding how sort of color lines, mm. um, but also lines of, of foreignness are regulated in daily life through local law. Oh, I think it sounds great. That's enough to whet our appetites, but not enough for anyone to scoop you, I don't think. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I know is unfortunately always a concern, but um, that sounds great. Well, um, congrats on on the book, on uh, the awards, and and thanks for chatting with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else of the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Rudd Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Rudd Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer, Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.